what are you going to do with that information? Is it going to terrify you and you're going to like be at the doctor every day wanting to scan? Or are you going to be proactive and use that information to be powerful? This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. I'm speaking today with Michelle Weaver-Knowles. Michelle is a nurse practitioner who recently established her own practice, Ava Health. She helps patients navigate cancer and understand the genetics associated with many cancers. Michelle's personal story that led her to this work is powerful, and you can understand why she dedicated herself to helping others deal with a complex storm of emotions and bureaucracy they encounter when dealing with a cancer diagnosis. Beyond that, our conversation surfaces some incredibly complex questions, questions that all of us and our society in general will have to grapple with. Communication and decision-making in families can be challenging. Layer on top of that the insights that genetics can offer, and it makes your head spin a bit. How should aspiring parents make decisions based on test results? What ethical obligations do parents have to inform their children of genetic test results? And what about people who learn their parents are not who they think they are? or that they have relatives they weren't aware of. These are just but a few of the incredibly difficult questions, the surface of which this conversation just begins to scratch. I learned a ton from Michelle, and I think that you will too. So let's get into it right now. Okay, so we're here today with Michelle Weaver-Knowles. Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast. I know, super excited. Yeah, so um, you are sort of a, you've been a nurse for a long time. But you've sort of recently become a nurse practitioner. Um, can you just tell us the distinction between those two things? I, I don't really know the difference. So, um, nurse kind of is a big umbrella. There's people that are medical assistants that have gone to like a trade school for a little while. They typically work in doctors' offices, and that's actually how I started out. And I worked on the postpartum unit. Okay. Then, um, while I was going to nursing school, I worked as a as a medical assistant. There's also LPNs, which is a licensed practical nurse, and that's usually a year and a half or so of school. There's um, master's, bachelor's, doctorate, associate degree nurses, and that just all has to do with how much time you went to school. Um, An associate's degree nurse, the order it kind of goes in is associate degree, bachelor's, so you have a bachelor's in nursing practice, Mm -hmm. which is what I was for about 35 years. And then I decided I could do more for patients if I got my nurse practitioner, which it can either be a master's or a doctorate degree. So because I was older when I went back to school, um, master's was a three-year program, okay. and I wanted to get out there and help people, so I chose to do a master's degree, and I graduated about a year and a half ago from Gonzaga. Fantastic. And since then, you have launched Ava Health, right? I have. And so tell us all about that. So one of the reasons I really wanted to become a nurse practitioner is to um, be able to write my own orders and take care of patients because I was frustrated with that as a nurse. As a just a regular nurse, you can't write orders. You can't make diagnoses. Right. And e- when you say write orders, like what's, what does that mean? Like I can't write a prescription for a medication to a pharmacy if I needed to refer you to a dietitian or I needed you to have a mammogram scan or, a or scan. Okay. I couldn't do that as a nurse. I knew what to do, but I just couldn't I couldn't write the order sure. and be the ordering yep. scope pr- of practice. provider, scope yeah. of practice, yeah. 
And so you wanted to go back to get some more education, and, and then you yeah, you did that. You became a nurse practitioner and launched Ava Health. And what is, mm-hmm. what is Ava Health about? So I chose to do a family nurse practitioner so that I wouldn't limit myself to the patients that I can take care of. So I can take care of newborn to elderly as a family nurse practitioner, and I can take care of men and women. So there's different designations of nurse practitioners. You could just be a women's health nurse practitioner. And actually Gonzaga called me up and said, why are you doing family nurse practitioner? Why aren't you doing a women's nurse practitioner program? Because that's your whole entire nursing career. So one of my big reasons for launching Ava Health is to be able to do genetic cancer risk assessment, we call it, for hereditary cancers. And I wanted to be able to take care of women and men because men can have these hereditary cancers as well. Yeah, I want to kind of get into that as, as we go. Um, so you've had a particularly personal experience with breast cancer, and that's guided a lot of your art career. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, your past, and how that's informed your mm-hmm. career choices? So my um, younger sister, Sherry, was 30 years old, and she had just finished breastfeeding a baby. She was her third boy. And she happened to do a breast exam in the shower and felt a breast lump. So at age 30, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And unfortunately, she died when she was 33 years old. Mm. And that was after a mastectomy and some chemo and bone marrow and stem cell transplants. So a pretty... She fought hard for a long time. She did. And it was a pretty traumatic thing to watch. Yeah. And really hard too for me emotionally because I'm the older sister and mm-hmm. I'm the nurse. Why couldn't I protect her from that and take care of her? So um, I have a lot of guilt about that. And I think being able to help other people and channel it that way and had to finally realize that she lives on in my heart and in my hands. And every patient I touch is in her memory. And hopefully they can feel that and I help them. And you share the same genes. We do. Yeah. So about four years after she died at age 38, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. My girls were 14 and 10, and I was the typical Hellgate fan parent, president, nurse, mm-hmm. working hard, doing, the doing all stuff. those mom things. And it was pretty devastating, especially since my sister had just died. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget my daughter, Madison, who was 10 at the time, saying, you know, mommy, are you going to die like oh, Aunt gosh, Sherry did? Yeah. Or the fear in my husband's face thinking, wow, am I going to be a widow at this young age mm-hmm. like my brother-in-law? Right. So that was pretty terrifying. So I was diagnosed in 1998. The BRCA or BRCA genes, people call them, are two genes that we see a lot in breast and ovarian cancer. Um, and you'll hear me say this a lot because there's other cancers too that are related to that. Uh, pancreatic melanoma and male breast cancer and prostate cancer. So um, I was um, diagnosed with that in 1998. That gene mutation, that gene had just been discovered in 1996 by Mary Claire King, so pretty new. I worked in an OBGYN office at the time and asked my physician that I worked for to go ahead and do that testing on me because I wanted to know for information for my kids. Had your sister had the testing? No, because she died in 94 and it wasn't discovered till 96. Oh, okay. Wow. So so when we look at hereditary cancers too, we look at different patterns. And one of the patterns in my family and in a lot of BRCA1 families or families where there are other hereditary cancers is 
um, young age at onset of a cancer. And in my particular one, it's something that has to do with the breast pathology report called a triple negative breast cancer. Okay. So that means the estrogen, the progesterone, and the HER2 testing were all negative. And those are generally more aggressive cancers. We don't have as many things to treat them with. And that they are sometimes associated with BRCA cancers. Okay. So you find out you have this gene. The gene's associated with a more aggressive form. And so can you just educate me and the listeners on the various types of cancers? I mean, you mentioned hereditary cancers. What other kind of categories are there? How, how are they organized? So we organize them sporadic, familial, and hereditary. Okay. So let's just talk about that for a yep. second. So a sporadic cancer, the way I describe it when I'm counseling patients, is you're an 80-year-old guy. You're a farmer. You drive around in your tractor all day out in the sun, not wearing any sunscreen. You're smoking in your tractor. You spray your crops with Roundup or Surprise, whatever. this guy's made it to 80. <laughs> I know. <Jeez. laughs> nice job. I know. And then you, um, he eats a non-grass-fed beef from that's probably got some of the Roundup on it yep. every single night, red meat. And he drinks about eight gin and tonics every night. Jeez Louise. So he's bombarded himself with lots of chemicals. Yep. So many of the genes that we test people for are what they, we call tumor suppressor genes. So we all have them. I have a BRCA gene. You have a BRCA gene. Okay. I just happen to have a mutated one, and I hope that you don't. Yeah. But um, so in, in a guy like him, what's supposed to happen is – the cells are dividing, and they're making abnormal things because of all these exposures. So the BRCA genes should hopefully swoop in and say, hey, cell, you're, you're misbehaving. You better fix yourself or I'm going to kill you. So that doesn't happen. So then the cells continue to grow and divide, and then that turns into a cancer. Okay, got okay. it. And that's so sporadic. That's sporadic. Got it. A familial cancer, and these are kind of the frustrating group because we see a lot of cancers in the family for some reason but we don't have an explanation for it. We've done genetic testing and the whole family's negative, but we're still suspicious something's going on. Mm -hmm. So is that maybe a gene we haven't identified yet? Or the way I explain it in the office, because no, most people know about Butte, Montana. So um, Butte, Montana is a mining community. Yep. And so I say, you know, or maybe all these cancers are because your whole entire family worked in the mines in Butte and you were exposed to the same... Sure. same exposure across the family. Right. Yeah. So that would be a sporadic cancer. And then familial can or hereditary cancers are cancers that you inherit a bad copy from a parent, and then that predisposes you to having a higher risk of cancer in your lifetime at a younger age younger age than what we would normally screen people for. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your 30s, I mean, that's mm -hmm. early. Um, and are, are, are there differences in sort of aggressiveness across these categories that are, that are stable? The familial or the sporadic or the yeah, hereditary? Yeah, familial, sporadic, or hereditary so, is um, one worse than the other, I guess? Hereditary cancers definitely are generally yeah. more aggressive. Okay. Yeah. And I guess you get them younger temp typically, so yeah, that can mm -hmm. be... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and there, there's uh, not as many, like, treatments sometimes for them. So I mentioned the triple negative breast cancer, and a lot of people have heard of people, women taking tamoxifen when they have breast cancer. Okay. So that's a drug that we give people that are estrogen receptor positive. In a triple negative cancer, your estrogen is negative. So taking tamoxifen might not help you for that cancer. Okay. 
So I'm already confused, and I can't even imagine how much more confused I would be if I actually had cancer or had been given the diagnosis. Your head just must be spinning, and you're, you know, you're whipped up into this sense of your own mortality, but also a world of chemistry and medicine and bureaucracy that's got to be so hard to navigate. So I'm feeling like maybe this is the genesis of Ava Health. Yes. So I'm a huge believer in educating patients. And I do it with visuals, probably more because I'm a visual learner. And when I get, like, I have a pelvic model, I have a breast model, and what the inside of your breast looks like. So when I get a new breast cancer patient in my office, it's one of my favorite things to do. Not that they've got breast cancer, but I can de-escalate fears in a patient really quickly with a little education. So I love to go through their pathology report with them and explain, because, you know, your your primary care provider is probably the person that ordered your mammogram. They call you up and say, okay, you've got an invasive ductal breast cancer. The only words you probably hear are yeah, invasive and cancer. Yeah, exactly. Those two, invasive cancer. And when cancer. you hear invasive, you probably think, oh, my gosh, that's all over my body now if it's invasive. Yeah, it sounds awful. Yeah. So I do a little bit of breast education as far as what the inside of their breast looks like so that we can talk about what invasive means, what ductal means. Here's what the inside of your breast looks like. So that's probably one of my very, very favorite appointments because those patients come in like white-knuckled, scared to death, and they leave my office usually hugging and laughing because they've got some knowledge, which is super powerful. I also do the genetics appointment at that time and schedule them with whatever their um, whatever providers they want to see. One of the beauties of Ava Health is it's a private practice, so I don't have to necessarily refer within my own hospital system because okay. I'm a private practice and I'm the only provider. So I think I I feel like we have to help our patients know what they kind of want in a provider and you know do you. Which hospital system do you prefer? Do you prefer male or female providers? Things like that. So we talk about that before any um, appointments are scheduled. And then I usually get their appointments scheduled. I have a huge collection of business cards in my office, and I start this notebook for them. And I start with the business cards of all the patients, the people that they're going to be seeing. Because they've got me. They've um, got a medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, a surgeon, um, there's just a lot of things that need to happen. Sometimes people need breast MRIs. Sometimes they need additional imaging. So having that all in one place for them and to know what people's names are and where their offices are, I think, is a cool thing to have. And then we start with, let's talk about the st- statistics of breast cancer. Breast, Because most people think, oh, my gosh, it's cancer. It's growing really fast. Yeah. I need to get in or I'm going to die. So um, we talk about the rate of growth, and then we kind of talk about breast anatomy. We talk about their pathology report, and I help them understand what those words mean. So, you know, it might be a invasive ductal breast cancer, um, grade grade three, stage whatever, you know, and, and yep. by then you can just see they're glazed. They're, they're glazed. And so we talk about all of that so that, and I tell them it's like learning a new foreign language. And I don't yeah. expect you to speak it instantly, but let's start introducing those words. And I feel like then by the time they get to the medical oncologist, the surgeon, 
they've at least heard those words and know what their pathology report means. So they're armed with information when they go into those appointments instead of, I remember, I'll never forget one of my appointments when I showed up. They, and, you know, I, was, I knew I was going to lose my hair, and that was terrifying as a 38-year-old young woman. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking they took my picture when I got to the doctor's office, and I was petrified. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm just not even going to look like myself. And so they wanted to take a picture so they'd remember who I was. Yeah. So that was super scary. And then we talk about the people on their team and what their role is. And then I give them some resources and ask them to call their health insurance and ask for a patient advocate that they can speak with because I can't know their policy. Their their other physicians can't know the ins and outs of their policy. And then that that advocate can help them with some insurance questions. And so I got two questions that are kind of related. I guess I'll ask the kind of second one first. What? How does a patient find you? I mean, how do you acquire new people into your practice? So um, provider referrals. Okay. So primary care oncology prover- providers refer to me um, wanting the genetics done on their patients. Genetics is its kind of own specialty in itself. Okay. So it's hard to keep up on everything. So, you know, I'd rather them focus on the chemo drugs and the cancer treatment. Sure. And let me do the genetics piece and I'll help get you that information. Yep. Because now we also do have medications that we use in people that are like BRCA positive and things like that. Yeah. So so a particular, okay, so you have sort of a particular medical practice scope, I guess, or or, or a differentiator there, right? You provide this genetics service that, that others either don't or think their patients need, or mm-hmm. that's, that's an entry point. That's an entry point. Um, primary care providers is part of the physical assessment of every year when you go in for yep. your annual exam, family history is on there. So hopefully, you know, a savvy little provider is going to be like, wow, if you, if, if you or a provider thinks, wow, that's really crazy that this family has people younger than 50 with cancer, that's, you need to take note of what you're thinking about that and be mm-hmm. like, hmm, maybe this is someone that Michelle needs to see. Um, so that's one, one way I see patients and then they refer a friend who they knew who had breast cancer when they were 30 and now they're 50. So they've survived their initial cancer, but young age at diagnosis is a red flag for testing. Sure. So they might say, oh, I talked to her. You know, you should go in and and see if you meet criteria for testing. Okay. And then I guess the second part of that is, so, and you answer part of that. So part of what you do that's distinct and provides kind of some differentiation is this genetics expertise. But, But I'm also hearing that there's sort of this helping a patient navigate the system. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, I'm assuming that motivated your, your, your interest in launching your own venture like this. It did, and it was because of my work as a nurse navigator right. before, and I didn't have that. You know, I felt kind of stupid as a nurse, and I worked in an OBGYN office. I worked with women when I was diagnosed, and I had no idea what this, any of that stuff mm-hmm. me- meant. And I just remember feeling so overwhelmed. And so that's why I love to get people in right when they're diagnosed before they, because it's usually at least a week and a half before you get to any of the oncology providers and you are terrified. Yeah. So and I you mean, probably feel like that week and a half is just, you're wasting time. You're right. sitting there and just dying. And the, t- and the cancer's just growing. Exactly. Yeah. So um, 
I think that that's, I personally feel like there should be nurse navigators in every area of medicine, uh-huh. um, you know, knee replacement, hip replacement, diabetes, wherever, because you don't, the general population doesn't know what their resources are. And it's nice to have someone that's an expert in that area. Oh, yeah help you kind of start understanding the information so that you can choose providers, choose treatments, choose um, how you how you want things to happen. Absolutely. My mother just went through a bypass procedure mm-hmm. maybe three months ago, and, you know, it came about ra- rather suddenly. Um, she didn't have a heart attack, but she found – they found major blockage, and she was in for surgery within a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, just the navigation of all of that and – you know, the 20 different meds you're on afterward and the various stages of rehab. And, like, there was no time to sort of adjust her life. And all of the, like you said, the patient goes through all this. There's a stress response mm-hmm. cognitively that, that, yeah, she really benefited from, in this case, a social worker at the hospital right. really guiding her through, guiding her and my dad through the whole process. Yeah, and social workers are a big part of, I think, yeah. oncology care, too. Um and the mental health piece of all of that because it's a super stressful time. So, okay, so a patient gets referred by a primary care physician. They're sort of feeling in crisis or something similar or something, and they come to you, and you, know, you help them understand their diagnosis but also provide this genetic counseling piece as well. So um, I just want to talk just for a second about different practitioners. So yeah. genetic counselors are different than what I am. Okay. So I'm a nurse. I'm a nurse practitioner that does genetics. So Got it. Um, a genetic counselor has an undergrad in usually some type of biology field, and then they get their master's in genetic counseling. They see, they can see all kinds of, I mean, there's all kinds of genetics things besides cancer. So they, they can see those and generally most of them do. So there are now, um, there were certifications for nurses a few years ago and just, I don't know, there was some problems with them not thinking that there was enough nurses interested. So the certifying body quit certifying nurses. And that's kind of why I went to get my master's as well because I wanted to be certified in genetics. And um, I wanted to make sure I wasn't practicing outside my scope, which I wasn't as a nurse because I could educate, mm-hmm. but I just couldn't take those other steps forward to write my own orders and take care of the patient and recommend how they should be taken care of. Okay. So there are nurses in genetics now. Um, there, we have an organization called the International Society of Nurses in Genetics. And so they are in the process, should be out like the first part of December of they've created another program now so that nurses can be certified. Okay. And there are nurses that are certified from the certifying bodies that we had in the past. So um, I went to um, a super intensive genetics course through the city of Hope in Duarte, California. It's a big cancer research place, and it's phenomenal. So I took a course last fall from um, November to February, And then I went to City of Hope for a week and had more training in didactics and case presentations and then went back to their yearly conference. So I'm a part of that City of Hope community of practice. So I have connections all over the world. I mean, there were people from Brazil and all kinds of places in my in my class. Mm -hmm. So I have that as a connection. And weekly on Wednesdays, I often listen in on their um, 
people have heard of like tumor board where we present cases. This is just kind of a genetics one. So if I have a case that is unusual or difficult or I want to, you know, bounce some ideas off of experts, then I can present a case there and um, over the Internet. And it's just super wonderful. Um, I have a fascinating case right now. It's a mutation called Lee-Framini or TP53. Okay. And the risks of cancer for that patient is 97% chance in her lifetime that she may get multiple cancers. Wow. So um, finding out that she was positive is pretty powerful information for her because she's in her in her mid 30s. Yeah. And she doesn't. She's never had cancer. But now we can be proactive with screening her differently so hopefully she doesn't get cancers in her lifetime or we catch them at an earlier stage before they're all over her body. Yeah, as I'm thinking about that, you get sort of an an indication you have that gene and it comes with it this 97% chance, like you said, of of contracting cancer in, in your lifetime. So one thing you do with that is what you mentioned, you get, you, you go through more rigorous, more regular screening. What else do you do with it in terms of lifestyle? I mean, can, can you like, well, to me, that would sort of motivate me to do something. I'm not quite sure what, but I'd feel like I had to do something. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Aspen Runkle. I'm a graduate student at the College of Business and a marketing intern for the podcast. And you're listening to A New Angle. Yeah, I just had my last patient I saw right before I came today um, has an MSH6 mutation, which is colon, uterine, um, stomach, ovarian. Um, It can do some bladder stuff, too. So she's obese. And so we had a long chat about diet and exercise and keeping her healthy through that and with other other testing and keeping an eye on her and here's what you need to look for taking a baby aspirin a day is going to help her too so Mm -hmm. and it's funny well it's not funny but um i asked my patients like the tp53 lady with the 97 percent chance i asked them you know are you glad you know i mean that's a super scary one to have and she really is you know her sister was diagnosed with breast cancer at 24 years old Uh And died at 26, and her father yeah. and her paternal grandfather both died of pancreatic cancer. And when she went back and thought about it, her sister also had a um, probably adrenal cancer when she was two, which is another part of that syndrome. Yeah. So it's powerful information, she feels like, because she hasn't had cancer yet, and she can do something about it. Are there... Are, do we know much about how these mutations come to be? Like why people, I mean, there's, there's, it's hereditary, I guess, but why, why is it there in the first place? That's a really good question. Yeah. What came first, That's the chicken the or the answer, egg? Right? <laughs> yeah. Some of these, like that TP53 one is an interesting one because it can be a spontaneous mutation and it happens um in the embryo stage when things are first forming, there can be like a little blip of a mutation. And then in TP53, it can, it can, we call that a de novo or a new mutation. So it's super interesting, but most of the time they're inherited from a parent. Okay. And so, so for instance, my mutation come, came from my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, There's other red flags we look at too, like Ashkenazi Jewish individuals. Sure. 
um, they have a higher incidence of being BRCA1 or 2 positive. So um, I come from an Irish-Polish family. So my mom is who I inherited my mutation from. So every time she made an egg, that egg either got her bad copy or her good copy because you have two copies. Yep. So I happened to get her bad copy. We're pretty sure my sister Sherry had her bad copy due to mm-hmm. her age at diagnosis, and she was estrogen progesterone negative. My brother, who is a male, got her bad copy. Okay. And then my younger sister got my mom's good copy. Mm. So every time an egg is made from my mom, you either got the bad copy or the good copy. So it's not like, you know, there's four of us kids and half of us got the bad copy right, and half right. got the good copy. And is your is your... Has your brother been ill yet? Nope. So my mom is 78 years old. Okay. So this is just a, a light in the end of the tunnel almost. She's 78, and she's never had cancer. Hmm. So she's what we call a pre-biver. So that's a person that knows they have a hereditary mutation, but they never have had cancer. Okay. And is that just, you know, random walk for your mom? Or is she, I mean, she didn't know that she had this this genetic mutation until after 96 or 7, whenever mm-hmm. you said that test was created. So she's just been fortunate, or she's lived a particularly healthy life, or some combination of the two? Well, I think she's been lucky. She yep. hasn't necessarily lived a healthy little life. She was a former smoker and okay. drinks some alcohol. So she's beaten the ad- so odds. So she's beaten the odds. Yep. Um, my brother is also what we call a previvor. So he's 55, mm-hmm. and he's never had cancer. He could probably stand to lose a few pounds. Yeah. Um, and then my younger sister, Bridget, who found out she was negative, is, you know, very. she's probably the healthiest one of all yeah. of us, actually. Yeah. And um, so because she's negative, then her kids don't need to be tested as far as her sure. side of the family is, is concerned. Now, um, my brother has two kids, a boy and a girl. So he... I, I like to talk to my patients, too, about some of the psychological and social aspects of testing because um, it can bring out things in families. Um, There's some strained relationships in my family, and probably the tip of the iceberg was the whole genetic piece of it. Plus, you can find out things like your mom's not really your mom or your dad's not really your dad and things like that. Sure. So we talk about that. Um, So my brother has two kids, and um, I'm not sure if he's told them. and you have to think about, is this a good time for them to know? They're 25 and 21-ish, mm-hmm. so we're not going to really screen them any differently yet. But the 25-year-old male, we wouldn't, we wouldn't start screening him for probably another 10-ish years or so okay. for prostate stuff. But um, if he was my patient, I would definitely make sure he knew the signs of symptoms of some of the cancers but maybe we don't really need to test him yet because we're not going to do anything different. But if he decided he wanted to have children, we could do some pre-implantation genetics and in vitro fertilization so he didn't pass the mutation on to his kids. Okay. But then that's a whole other moral, ethical, religious thing yeah, that a patient yeah. has to go through. And then um, his daughter is 21, and we're, we wouldn't do anything differently for her if she was positive until she's 25, and we would start with breast screening. And um, so I worry about her because a lot of times we know in the next generation, um, the cancers happen earlier. And so my sister was 30, and this little niece of mine is 21. Um, I also have a colleague who works in the industry for one of the genetic testing companies, and she's a nurse in genetics. 
She works for one of the genetic testing companies, mm-hmm. so she knows tons of stuff. And um, she's positive, and she knew her 25-year-old daughter was positive, and this daughter was getting screened already with breast MRI. And in the interval between her two breast MRIs, she got diagnosed with breast cancer. So um, it's, it can be super scary. So you have to decide what are you going to do with that information. Is it going to terrify you and you're going to like be at the doctor every day wanting a scan? Or are you going to be proactive and use that information to be powerful? My sister had three boys. Um, as far as I know, the oldest and youngest one have not been tested. The middle one was tested and he's negative. It took him two years to get an appointment with a genetic counselor to be tested. He lives down in Florida. So that is super crazy. So um, powerful news for him. And then I have two daughters who both got my good copy. So they're negative. And they're what we call a true negative because we know there's a mutation in the family and we know they don't have it. Okay. Same thing with my younger sister. She's a true negative. Um, But then... She's the only one of the four of us that's negative, so kind of had a little guilt about that. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah, you I know. Tell. Yeah. yeah. So when when somebody so so you help patients of yours sort of navigate if and when to get some of this testing done, and then like you said, once you have the information, it's it can be powerful. How do you help patients walk through? The, the layers upon layers of issues with acting on that information or not acting on it. Mm-hmm. So when I have my patients come back in for their test results, yeah. I don't generally, unless it's a cancer patient going through treatment and we're like down to the wire of their surgical decision making, should they have a mastectomy or should they have bilateral mastectomies um, or should they have a lumpectomy or bilateral mastectomies? So um I generally make them come back for appointment so we can go over the full report. I'm a huge believer in what we call panel testing, where we're testing for other genes. A lot of people know about the BRCA1 and 2 genes, but there's other genes that cause breast cancers. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at family histories, you've got you know, a breast, ovarian, a prostate. So you've got to hit all of those genes right. because there's many of them. So I'm a, I'm a panel tester, so I generally test at least 35 genes. Um, and there's other ways of, to look at risk about breast stuff that we can talk about, and breast prostate stuff that we can talk about. But um, So the, I bring them back in. We go over what their mutation is and where the gene is and what the cancers are associated with that gene. We also look at the report again, and I've I've educated them about this in our pre-counseling session um, of what what the different genes are that we tested them for, because I want them to understand that, because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you know, I had BRCA testing. Okay, well, did you have just BRCA testing? Because this day and age, that's not enough. You need to have these other genes looked at. If that's the only cancers you have in your family and you just want the breast panel, that's okay. Uh-huh. So we have that conversation. Panel testing's been out since 2014. And as we get more information in about some of these other genes, it's allowing science to move forward in thinking like maybe does one of those colon genes also have a little component of breast cancer to it? Do we need to be thinking about that? So I talk to them about when they're doing a panel test that we um, are adding, they're adding knowledge to science. Okay. Um, one of the things that, um, a reasons not to do a panel test is something called a variant of uncertain significance. So it's a genetic misspelled word that maybe we don't have an answer for yet. Most of the time, the labs 
have them as negative on more towards the negative side than the positive side. So we have to watch that. And then as the labs get more information on that particular misspelled variant, it'd be like, let's say the word is supposed to be spelled cows, C-O-W-S, but instead yours says cows, K-O-W-S. Well, phonetically, we can still sound that out to spell the word cows. It's just an unusual variation. Sure. So then the lab's job is to figure out, is it harmful or not? Is it cancer causing? So the the more genes we test, you know, we get those variants, but then we get information about the variants so we can reclassify them to, are they positive or are they negative? So there's um, that whole panel testing piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then we go through all the genes they were tested for. We go through the mutation they have, what the cancers they cause, what's the incidence of those cancers, and what are we going to do to screen you for it? And what do you need to tell the rest of your family? Yeah, I guess that's a piece I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Like, What do you tell the rest of your family, your siblings, your children? Or if you haven't had children, this might have an influence on your decision to have children. To have children or to do in vitro. Yeah. So how do those conversations go? I mean, do you have like a framework you use to help navigate these sort of moral quagmires? Yep. I talked to them about all of those things. And, you know, that's one of the things brings up a point with insurance companies because insurance companies are getting, you know, where they don't want to cover stuff Mm -hmm. and it's really frustrating. So you have to have those things documented that you actually counseled the patients on them, which is what you should do if you're doing genetics appropriately. You know, if you just went to your doctor and they're like, here, spit in this thing, let's send your genetics off. That is not informed decision-making or shared decision-making, and I'm a huge believer in shared decision-making for my patients. If you're a person that that's going to make you worry too much, then maybe we maybe you're the type of patient that we don't test. Yeah, and then I'm thinking of this world where the, the insurance company has access to your genetic information, and, and yeah, that seems like a very fraught situation yep. with their, them being able to maybe set rates according to your genetics and things like that. Well, actually, there's a law. It's called the GINA law. Okay. And it, uh, your health insurance cannot discriminate against you based on your genetic status. Yeah. They can't. I actually had a um, health insurance company ask me to send my patients results the other day, and I called them up and said, yeah, no, you can't do you that because of the GINA law. Would you like me to send you a copy of that? And, you know, they were like, bugging the heck out of me to send those. And mm. I, when I called back and said that, they're like, I haven't heard from them for a week now. Interesting. Were they, yeah. I mean, they can't have not been aware of the law. They're just maybe thinking that you might not be. Maybe. I don't oh, know. I know. So we talk about oh. that. And then um, life insurance isn't a piece of that. So I do kind of talk to my patients about that. And maybe you want to make sure your life insurance is in place. Um, yeah. I have never met anyone that's had a life insurance issue. Um, I haven't. And I got a new company uh-huh. this year. So, yeah. Wow. Well, okay. So I just got to assume these are going to be really hard conversations. They are, but you know, for some, for most patients, they want to know why did I get cancer? Yep. I wanted to know, did I not eat enough organic food? Did I not do this? Did I not do that? So sometimes in these families, especially with lots of cancers, we see answers mm-hmm. and that makes people feel okay. Um, and then back to the whole knowledge is power thing, because they li- a lot of these families live in fear of having all those cancers. So when they finally really do have a plan, they feel better about it. Sure. And there's a lot of education about it. I ask people when I tell them, you know, that they're positive, how, are, you, are you glad you did the test? And 
I they most the most of the time they are. I can't yeah, think of anybody think. that hasn't. Yeah, I mean, generally more information is good in this. Yeah, and before instance. I have them spit in my little thing to do the test, it's just a spit saliva test. Yeah. I say, you know, are you sure you want this information? What are you going to do with it? Right, right. That's important to think through. I just <laughs> remember with our children, we had various tests when my wife was pregnant and the the, the choices of to whether or not to have those tests and what the results could tell you or not tell you. And yeah, you sort of had to run through the litany of decisions. Like, mm-hmm. what are you going to do if you get a positive on this? Yep. Is it going to change your decision-making, anything? It's complicated. Yeah. You know, you might not terminate a pregnancy, right? but you want to be darn sure that you're in a facility, like let's say it's a Down syndrome baby. Sometimes they're born with heart heart issues. Uh-huh. So you might not terminate the pregnancy, but let's make sure that you're in a facility that can take care of right. that baby when it's born. Let's watch the baby, make sure it's growing. Let's watch its heart, all those things with mm-hmm. ultrasound. So I want to be respectful of your time, Michelle. Can you give as we kind of close here, what would be some of the best tips you could give the listener if they want to be a previvor or have one of their friends and family be a previvor? So Thanksgiving weekend, so this is perfect timing, is a great time. Families around, you're sitting around the table to document your family history because there's a lot of people that don't. My parents generation did not talk about their those things it was taboo especially when you're talking about breasts and ovaries and sure like who died and of prostate. what when and yeah all you want to know how they were related how old they were when they died and this is an important piece too in clues that i look for did someone die early like 24 years old in a car accident they didn't live old enough to develop the cancer so i look for clues like that sure is it a small family? We call that a truncated family where there's not very many individuals in the family. Is it someone that's adopted? That's that's a tricky one because it's mm. hard to get those covered sometimes. But yep. um, so document how the how the per, who the person is and start with like we I do a three generation family history. So it'd be like grandparents, parents, siblings, sure. and your children. That'd be four. So you know, document age that they died what they died from and then um aunts uncles all of that and just keep that and give it to the rest of the family so that as time goes on and people die you know what your family history is if you're going to adopt out a baby please give that information to the adoptive parents Mm -hmm. i mean it's great great info so family history is a huge thanksgiving thing um there's a thing called my health portrait Uh, where you can go on and actually document that stuff. So things to look for if you are concerned. I do have a hereditary cancer quiz on my website, which is um, www.avahealthllc.com, and Ava is A-V-A. It's actually my first name, and it means the voice for others, so that's why I chose Mm. that name for my practice. So you can go on there and take this hereditary cancer quiz, and then that gets emailed to me, and if you're positive, we or, you know, concern that there might be something going on, then you come in for a genetic cancer risk assessment, we call it, GCRA, and then we determine if you meet criteria for testing or maybe um, who's the right person in your family to test. We usually like to test higher up on the pedigree. So, like, my mom would have been a great person to test, but there weren't any cancers before my sister and I because if she's 
negative, then all of her children would be negative. But then right. if she's positive, each child has a 50-50 chance. Okay. So um, we look at who's best for testing and then um, go from there. Well, Michelle, this is sort of fascinating, horrifying, and comforting at the same time. I know. Like, isn't it crazy? It's, it's such a uh, swirl of, of emotions, and I'm not even really in it, fortunately, for the time being, mm-hmm. and hopefully it stays that way for a long time. But thank you for this work. Yeah. One of, you know, one of the things I like to say, too, is especially for cancer patients, the decisions you make in the beginning of your treatment affect you the rest of your life. So I initially had, Mm. you remember, my stuff was all when it very first came out. So I had a lumpectomy. Because I had a lumpectomy, I'd have radiation, and I had chemo. So after a few years of finding out some information, I discovered that my chance of getting breast cancer again in my lifetime was pretty high. So I went back and had bilateral mastectomies and didn't have the options of implant for reconstruction because of the skin from the radiation. So I had a big surgery called a tram flap where they use your rectus muscle and fat from your belly and skin from your belly to create your breast mound. So those decisions that were all made in the beginning of my treatment have affected me the rest of my life. And I'm a 21 year survivor right now. So um, that's what I like to talk to patients about in those initial diagnosis appointments is to, this can affect you. You need to think about what you're choosing and Ask your doctors, these your oncology providers, these questions. Well, it's it's fantastic that I mean it seems like you're filling a critical need here with helping people navigate this super difficult, terrifying time in their lives and, and hopefully get through it as, as best they can. So where can people go if they want to learn more about Ava Health? So they can go to my website, www.avahealthllc.com. They can call my office, schedule an appointment, ask a question. Go from there. Go from there. All right. Thanks, Michelle. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me and letting me blab for a whole hour about genetics because I'm a nerd about it. It was super. I loved every minute. Thanks. All right. My head is spinning a bit from that conversation. Hopefully, you'll never need Michelle's expertise. But if you do, you know how to find her. Okay. Coming up next week, we have number 11 in the Sea Change series, and I'm super pumped about it. It's a conversation with the amazing Sarah Calhoun founder of Red Ant's Pants and all the associated awesomeness. Stay tuned for that one next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag, a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.